1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp, thanks for joining us today. Got an awesome show here where we are talking all things booze. That's booze with the Z, alcohol. I'm not going to lie, I enjoy the occasional cocktail or beer, but I never thought too heavily about what goes into... The process of making alcohol, making it flavored, how it tastes, where it comes from, what it's made of. And even more so, I really never thought about the fact that it comes entirely from plants. So as I was perusing Amazon one day, looking at interesting books and titles, I came across our guest this week, Amy Stewart. And Amy's written seven books, a number of them New York Times bestsellers, including the one we're discussing today, which is called The Drunken Botanist, The Plants That Create the World's Greatest Drinks. I really enjoyed this conversation with Amy as we touch on what plants are used for various liquors, how alcohol is made, what her favorite Alcohols are, including some strange ones that I've never heard of, but I am definitely going to buy. A little bit about the history of alcohol, where it came from. It's just that kind of information that's gonna make you the smartest guy at your cocktail party. So thanks for joining us again this week at Smart People Podcast. Please reach out to us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we really appreciate your iTunes reviews. We've gotten some great ones recently. Wanna give a shout out to Ike Shauna and Marketing Maven for leaving some pretty awesome reviews. And we love hearing from you on Twitter. It's a way to spread the word and let people see it. We are at Smart People Pod. All right, let's get drunk or at least learn about why and how we get drunk as we talk to Amy Stewart about all things alcohol and her fantastic book, The Drunken Botanist. Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. I can't wait to talk to you about how really my interest is how to create, how to craft the perfect cocktail using some crazy, weird plants or spices or herbs or something like that. I just, you know, so thanks for being on. I'm excited to get started. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So again, the the book I'm referring to in that is um, one of your most popular books, I think, at least from what I've seen, called The Drunken Botanist. And, of course, that title right away is going to grab me. But I guess let's start <laughs> off and just talk about, you know, uh, what what is that book? Where did the idea come from? And how did you decide, you know what, I'm going to write a whole book about this?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I have been writing about plants and the natural world in one way or another for, um, you know, for 10 or 15 years. The Drunken Botanist was my sixth book. And uh, because I do this kind of work, I'm just out in the world talking to horticulture people, you know, botanists and plant breeders and people who just are involved in the world of plants. And I was out one night having drinks with a guy who's a friend of mine. He's a garden designer, and he, he also does the same kind of writing I do. And we're just sitting at a bar and we're looking at all the bottles behind the bar and we start naming all the plants in the bottles. Like, Oh, look, there's agave and tequila and there's sugarcane and rum and there's, you know, barley and beer. And we just start going through all these plants and realizing how much we know about what is in those bottles from the from the botanical side. And then I started going to getting more involved in the cocktail world. Like there's this amazing conference in New Orleans called Tales of the Cocktail. And you go to Tales of the Cocktail and there's all these super geeky bartenders who are really into knowing what are the ingredients and what's the history of them and why are they used in drinks, but they really don't know anything about plants. And, and they were just sort of missing kind of the bigger picture of, of what happens when you take these plants and soak them in alcohol. So I thought, you know, this, there's a book in this because there's a big missing piece in like all of our interest in the cocktail world and really in the botanical world as well.
1: The first thing that comes to my mind is there not only was there a book in this, there was a really, you know, a, a book that did really well, sold a lot of copies. And I'm thinking, how many people go, you know what? That's a that's a book I want. And apparently it's a lot. I mean, does that ever surprise you?
2: Uh, It kind of doesn't surprise <laughs> me, actually. I was so I was so into this that it was impossible for me to imagine that other people wouldn't be, too. Yeah. <laughs> so. I kind of think because I was straddling these two worlds. I mean, definitely people in the plant world love it when they can, you know, make a connection between their plant and something bigger in the world. So if you know, if you're if you're really into agaves and there are people who are super geeky agave collectors and then they can go, "Wow, there's this incredible obscure spirit that's only made in one region of Mexico that has been Uh, in production for 400 years. Like that's just fascinating. And um, I was really lucky that the bartenders kind of glommed onto it because they are a very picky crowd Mm. and uh, they're hard to please. Mm. (laughs) They know a lot and they know they know a lot. So I was glad that they found it useful and that it added to what they already know about their craft.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing is we, we, you know, so many of us consume alcohol in in some capacity, right? You might have a beer, you might have 10 or a glass of wine or a bourbon, right. whatever it might be. But oftentimes, we don't think about where it comes from. And my fascination with this book, or even the idea behind it, or, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of kind of craft specialty cocktails, is the idea of it comes from plants, right? Like it comes from food or it comes from the ground, this thing that has such a profound effect on everything, right? Our memory, our cognition, the next morning, my hangover, you know, (laughs) that's, it's, it's fascinating when you look at it that way.
2: Right. And, and, you know, people, I think sometimes when they first see the book, they say, oh, so what's your favorite botanical cocktail? As if that's a special unique thing, you know, like some sort of (laughs) cocktail that has a whole bunch of leaves and flowers sticking out of the top of it or something like that. And my thing is always, well, that's my whole point is everything's botanical. A beer is a botanical cocktail. Mm. So and, you know, my way then of thinking about beer is there is no chapter on beer in the book, but there's a chapter on barley and there's a chapter on wheat and on rice. And these are all plants that end up in beer. Um, so really looking at, well, what about barley makes it so useful as a beer or whiskey ingredient and what kind of barley and who's growing that barley, you know, and then I have an excuse to go talk to the people at the, at the Scottish Crops Research Institute, where they're trying to grow a better strain of barley to make whiskey with. And so it's like really getting into each of those ingredients and opening up, all the different ways we've made alcohol out of some of these plants.
1: Well, I kind of want to go back to the beginning of alcohol. I know you cover, you know, a lot of history in the book, but the thing I always wondered is who the hell found this stuff? Like, did did they just accidentally, you know, brew something up, get wasted and say, I want to do that again. And then realize, wait a second, let's try everything that grows from the ground. And if that's the case, there must have been a lot of deaths and stomach aches.
2: Well, you know, it's an interesting question. Like, how did we really start making alcohol? And now um, archaeologists and botanists are able to make so much more progress on that question because of the technology we have. So for instance there's this guy Patrick McGovern who is a, a you know an, an archaeologist with a specialty in fermentation and distillation. So he goes out and analyzes the residue on pottery shards to figure out what they were making, what they were brewing. And so the question of like how much of it was just an accident, you think well yeah, I can see that accident happening, right? You leave a bucket of grapes sitting out and they kind of get all juicy, and wild yeast finds their way in and starts eating the sugar, and pretty soon you have a little bit of alcohol going. Or you leave out a bucket of um, oats or grains to soak, and it starts to froth and bubble, (laughs) and somebody drinks that, and that's kind of what beer is. So it probably did start out with those kinds of happy accidents. But the interesting thing is that now, botanists working together with archaeologists are starting to think, that a lot of the very first crops we were growing for agriculture were grown first for alcohol and then later for food.
1: I love humans. I love Isn't it. Isn't
2: that an amazing thought? That is
1: that That makes me feel so much better about my life. <laughs>
2: I mean, like, they're looking at that with corn, for instance. So corn's a great example. I mean, you know, we that's what bourbon is made from, right? You have to It has to be at least 51% corn if you want to call it bourbon. Well, the early, early varieties of corn weren't really grown for the grain. Like, the grains were very small. Ears of corn were really tiny, and they weren't all that important. But there was a lot of sugar in the corn stalk, kind of like there is in uh, sugar cane. So they were eating... The cornstalk because it was a source of sweetness of sugar, and also crushing it and getting the sugary juice out of the cornstalk, which is going to become something like wine. Um, they actually uh, we used to call it um, cornstalk wine back in the days of sort of the founding fathers. That's a term they would have used for it. So a lot of these plants turn out that the the earliest part of their history of being cultivated deliberately by humans probably was motivated by alcohol. And it wasn't just because they wanted to get drunk. It was also that drinking something with a little alcohol in it was safer because it killed the bacteria. You know, they didn't know what bacteria was. But the fact is that a lot of water was unsafe to drink, even pre-industrial. We're not even talking about factories dumping pollution in rivers. We're just talking about if all your water comes out of this river and then a bison dies and falls in the river upstream, you know, the streams contaminated. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, there were a couple of things there that, you know, got my brain going. And the first was let's, if we could, let's back up and talk about really how alcohol is made. And, and cause I have a general idea, but I don't think I can, Fully dive into this subject without hearing it, kind of from your point of view of the the way the plants interact with you know each other and different plants and everything to to create alcohol. So can you go through that for me?
2: Yeah, sure. So the easiest way to think about this is probably to start with fruit. So if you take something like um, apples or grapes, they're full of sugar, right? And you crush them up, so you've got the juice and In the wild, if you were to just set that outside, like anywhere, anywhere in the world, if you were to just set it outside, there are these little tiny invisible microorganisms called yeast, and they would find their way to that sugar, because that's what they do is they eat sugar. And they might drift in on the wind, or they might even come in with some bugs, because you see a little line of ants going down the sidewalk. Where are those ants going? They're going towards the food. Uh, They love sugar. And so a lot of yeast like to hitchhike on bugs. So the earliest way that yeast got into, say, grape juice is that they found their way uh, out in the wild. Now we would just add a packet of yeast uh, to the juice. And those yeast start eating sugar. And yeast are like any other living organism in that after they eat, they make waste products, (laughs) right? Hmm so so the waste products that yeast make are like way more interesting than the ones we make they, <laughs> they can actually make alcohol and co2 so when you next time you have a beer or a cocktail what you're drinking is the waste product of billions of dead yeast organisms
1: I'm drinking yeast excrement
2: that's what you're drinking yeast excrement that's you, right
1: you might have just ruined it for me <laughs> no, no, you'll, you'll be,
2: you'll get over it. Okay, good. Um, but <laughs> anyway, so at a very simple level, that's how you get beer and wine. Uh, the thing with beer is a little more complicated because it's made from grains and grains are just the seed of a, some type of grass, like barley or wheat or rye or rice. They're all grasses. And um, so those seeds have a little bit of starch packed around the seed And the reason for that is that when the seed drops to the ground and gets wet and starts germinating, meaning that it puts down roots and sends up leaves, the little baby plant needs something to eat before it's old enough to make its own food. And so all that starch that's been packed around the seed, when it gets wet, these enzymes inside the seed start busting that starch back up into sugar so that the plant has something to eat. So if you want to make beer, you have to get those grains wet and trick them into thinking they're about to start germinating so they will start busting their starches back up into sugars, and then you can bring in the yeast to eat all those sugars.
1: It all comes back to sugar.
2: Yes, right, right, for both grains and fruit, and that's basically the only place we get alcohol from. There's other things like, so sugar cane, the sugar's in the stalk. It's not in the fruit or the grain. And then something like agave, which is totally weird, Uh, you know, they can get sugars out of the roasted heart of the agave, but they got to really work on it. So some of these plants, you think, man, how did did you figure that out the first time? Um, Even potatoes, for instance, it's a tuber, it grows underground, and it's full of starch, which is just sugar packed in a different form. And uh, there again, you got to just take that starch and kind of break it back into sugar, and feed it to yeast.
1: So, could you essentially get alcohol out of any food? We'll, we'll say plant-based food that contains sugar. Yes. Is are there plants? This man. These questions might be stupid. So, Not I apologize all. to you and listeners who already know this. But are there plants that don't contain sugars?
2: Well, there's plants that probably don't have enough sugar um, to make it worthwhile. So, think about carrots, for instance. Mm no, I'm not sure there's really enough tasty sugar in a carrot. Not that carrots aren't sweet, but I don't know that you're really going to get enough yeast in there and interested. The Mm -hmm. other thing is it has to be the kind of sugar that yeast like to eat, which is what we would call fermentable sugar. So pears are a really interesting example. Like I love pear cider and I think pear brandy is really interesting, but pears are really hard to work with because they have a lot of sugar of a type called sorbitol. And uh, you might notice sorbitol showing up in um, sugar-free gum.
1: Yeah, and in, yeah, I thought about yeah. that in gum, yeah. Sure,
2: right. So pears have a lot of this sorbitol, which is a non-fermentable sugar. So the yeast can't eat it. So it makes it very tricky and just temperamental to work with. Hmm. Um, the reason we like sorbitol in um, sugar-free gum is that being non-fermentable, I think the idea is that also the bacteria in our mouth aren't as attracted to it. So that's why it's maybe better for our teeth as well.
1: Oh, okay. I never thought about that.
2: Yeah. Weird, huh?
1: All right. Let's take a break here for a message from one of our sponsors, lynda.com, who is simply out there to help you get smarter. That's why we love them. That's why they support the show. Why don't you challenge yourself to learn something new? Go ahead. You get a free 10-day trial to lynda.com, which is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, Photoshop, etc. All of their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, or improve upon your current job skills, lynda.com has something for everyone. Sign up for your free 10 day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash smartpeople. Here's what you'll get. Unlimited access to every single course on lynda.com. Access to view tutorials on tablets and iPhone plus Android mobile devices. And access to new courses that are added every week. Some of the courses I've tried I really recommend Are business writing fundamentals and getting things done. Both of these are things that I feel like we incorporate every day in our lives, whether we're entrepreneurs or working for the man, we got to know how to write and we got to know how to get things done. So why not head on over to lynda.com slash smart people, sign up for your free 10 day trial and give it a shot. Again, that's lynda.com slash smart people. Let's get back to the show. Yeah. So, okay. So now let's go through, you know, if you could just riff off and I don't know, I'm assuming you know all this stuff because you've been doing it for so long. <laughs> Who knows? But each alcohol and what it's made from.
2: Yeah. Let's, let's give it a try.
1: So what do you got?
2: Oh, you want me to just kind of, kind of go through? Well, cause
1: here's why I ask it that way instead of me saying like, okay, tequila, because
2: yeah. I, you
1: know, I could go through the standards, but I'm wondering if there's some that I would miss, you know what I mean?
2: Okay, so here's the thing. When we think about each alcohol and what it's made from, um, yeah, we can go through the basics pretty easily. You know, um, you've got beer, which is made mostly from barley, wheat and uh, maybe rice like Budweiser is almost entirely rice. Mm. Um, You have sake, which is made from rice. And uh, they they, by the way, the Japanese have this incredibly beautiful and fascinating process that involves a synergy between a type of mold and a type of yeast to get in and colonize that rice. It's the coolest, weirdest process. Hmm. And it creates a lot of really um, unusual flavors. So I should say that when yeast eat sugar, they don't just excrete pure alcohol. They make a lot of other interesting flavors. So the species of yeast that you use radically changes the flavor. Hmm. Um, So sake, uh, obviously hard cider from apples and cider from pears. Um, you get into wines and you're not just dealing with grapes but you might also be dealing with uh, plums or black currants or gosh you could even make raspberry wine um, in india there are some sort of exotic fruits that they make wines out of so basically uh, any kind of fruit that can be crushed and the juice can be gotten out of it someone has tried to ferment that mm. and make wine out of it and then when you get into spirits so, yeah, we've got tequila and mezcal, which come from different species of agave. We have rum, which comes from sugarcane. Um, and then all of the whiskeys are mostly grain-based, meaning, you know, again, barley, wheat, and rye primarily, um, but also maybe some rice. And uh, then you get into the brandies, which are all fruit-based. So uh, cognac and, and, uh, and armagnac are made from grapes. And Calvados is made from apples and you can make plum brandy, you know, Slivovitz, which is highly underrated. is actually really wonderful. Blue plums are used to make um, plum brandy, Slivovitz, which is delightful. Hmm. So, so, you know, you've got this whole category of brandies, which are all made from fruits. And then I think the other thing that people really think of when they think about spirits and wonder where they come from is they think about gin and vodka, And so the thing about that is that vodka can be made from any of the plants I've just mentioned. It doesn't matter. (laughs) It just has to be clear and sort of neutral in flavor. Um, And gin is nothing but flavored vodka. So when we're talking about those spirits, we're talking about a base that can come from sugar beets. It could come from grains. It could come from any kind of fruit. And then if you're going to make gin, you're adding flavors to it after you've made
1: the alcohol. Wait, so vodka is only... or you anything can be deemed vodka if it's clear it, like you you know what i'm saying that's weird to me because when you think of say uh rum it has to come from sugar cane but vodka right. can come from anything it has a different way of categorizing it
2: That's right. Yeah, vodka is just a clear um uh neutral high proof spirit. It has to be distilled um to a a, a high concentration of alcohol. So Whiskey and brandy are defined typically by being distilled up to a lower concentration of alcohol. Mm. Um, But but vodka has to be very high proof, very clear, very stripped of most of its identifiable characteristics. So even though vodka companies spend a lot of money telling you that their vodka tastes better, under the law, they're supposed to be pretty neutral.
1: Interesting. That's so... It's so fascinating. And now let's talk about, because I'd say my favorite spirit is bourbon. Uh-huh. And and we were, and I mean, I drink a good amount of it and, and I was out somewhere with a friend and, you know, I've had this conversation before. What's the difference between like bourbon and then bourbon whiskey and then regular whiskey and right. like, and I've read it on Google, but I always forget what differentiates all those things, even though they're so similar. And they even say both on the label, bourbon whiskey.
2: Yeah, it can be a little confusing. Well, whiskey is the broad overall category for a spirit made from grains as opposed to fruit, because if it was made from fruit, we'd be calling it brandy of some kind. If it's made from grains, we're calling it whiskey of some kind. So that's just sort of the umbrella term. For these spirits that are... um, Uh, distilled, usually using some kind of old-fashioned type of still, like a pot still, and not distilled to a very high proof. They might distill it up to about 60% alcohol and then then water it back down before it goes in the bottle to get it to 40% or whatever they're selling it at. So that's all that whiskey means is just this grain-based gotcha. spirit um, that's almost always aged in oak, although it doesn't have to be. That's what white whiskey is, which, you know, you might also call moonshine. Um, but if it's aged in oak and brown in color, then the only the, the only difference beyond that is that bourbon means that it's at least 51% corn. Uh, usually it's more like 60 or 70% corn, but by law it only has to be 51%. Um, If it's rye whiskey, then again, it has to be predominantly rye, or you can just have something that's just broadly called whiskey, which can be just, you know, your own mixture of wheat, rye, corn, maybe some other grains. The
1: stuff that people are making in their bathtub.
2: (laughs) Yeah, or... Well, or somebody's just come up with a really nice blend. You know, there are all sorts of fantastic um, American whiskeys that are not predominant in any one particular grain. And there are also some really wonderful blended whiskeys. You know, people tend to look down their nose at blended whiskeys and say that they want a single malt, which means single malt just means it all came from the same batch. It's not we haven't blended different barrels together. But man, you just start blending different barrels together and you can get some incredible flavors. You know, maybe you take part of your whiskey and you age it in a barrel that used to hold uh, port or sherry so that it extracts a little Um. bit of this wonderful wine flavors. And maybe you put some of it in a barrel that's a brand new oak barrel, but you've toasted it to get some of the caramel vanilla notes out of the wood. Maybe you age them for different times. Maybe you've got a barrel that last held rum in it, so it's got a little bit of that wonderful taste. And then you start blending and mixing and matching different ages and different types of barrels, and you can get something really fantastic out of a blended whiskey by doing that.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I know what I'm doing as soon as we get off this call. I'm going to <laughs> go pour a little something. Uh, okay, a couple of things. First, let's talk about moonshine because yeah. it's getting a lot of coverage. You know, there's the moonshiners, and uh, actually, a neighbor of mine. I just moved. Came up, introduced himself. We get to talk, and he's like, OK, come on over." He's making moonshine in his basement. He gives me a little bit. It's amazing. I want to make some. What is moonshine? How do I make it?
2: <laughs> well, you know, moonshine's a totally unofficial term. That's just a that's just a general term in our language for kind of homemade or backwoods whiskey. Uh, right now, people mostly use it to refer to whiskey that hasn't gone into a barrel, so it's unaged. And we should talk a little bit about what happens when you put a spirit in a barrel. Yeah,
1: that's so, I, let's do that.
2: Yeah, because when it comes out of the still, it's going to be at a pretty high proof. Like I say, it might be 60% alcohol, something like that. You put that in a barrel, and it's a solvent. I mean, alcohol is a solvent, And you put it up against some wood, and it starts pulling flavor out of the wood. And it just so happens that American oak trees are very high in vanillin, which is a flavor molecule, basically identical to what's found in vanilla bean orchids. So you get a lot of vanilla flavor out of American oak barrels. In fact, you can make imitation vanilla extract out of sawdust. Wow. Because there's so much vanillin in the wood. (laughs) So you get these wonderful flavors out of the wood. And a little bit of the alcohol evaporates, which is what they call the angel share, right? This charming term that some of the alcohol is for the angels and they take it away with them. Very cute <laughs> idea. Um and anyway, you age it for as long as you're going to age it, whatever that is. And then when it comes out of the barrel is when water gets added to it and it gets bottled. So that it is at exactly the proof that it's supposed to be at to meet the requirements of the law. Mm. So moonshine tends to be something that comes right out of the still and um, may or may not get a little water added to it water is a good thing water is not a bad thing to add because um, a lot of the flavor the molecules that give whiskey and other high proof spirits their flavor tend to be um, kind of evenly dispersed throughout the alcohol and when you put water in there it makes them clump up together those flavor molecules Uh. and you can actually taste it better And you'll notice sometimes if you're drinking a really good whiskey, um, and this happens a lot with um, herbal liqueurs like um, chartreuse and things like this, that you add a little bit of water or an ice cube, and you see this oily slick start to form. And that's good. That means that there's a lot of these wonderful oily plant-based flavors floating around in there, and the water has made them kind of unstable, so they want to clump next to each other, and you can taste them better. So anyway... That's what happens in the barrel, but the the stuff coming directly out of a still definitely has a different flavor as you've noticed. You get you don't get any wood, so there's no wood flavor. It's this malted barley. It, that malt flavor is so distinctive. And uh you can do it yourself, but you do risk um you know, a federal prison sentence and a fine of I think it's $250,000. What? It's it's serious. It's, it is, it is illegal. It is so illegal that if you go take a distillery tour and you're walking around with some hip dude, who's got this awesome distillery and he's making this great whiskey and you go, Oh yeah, I do this in my garage. I swear they will turn around and give you this panic look and say, stop, stop right now. Don't talk to me about that. Wow. Like it is taken very seriously. That doesn't so make any just, sense to me word of wisdom to your word of caution to your uh, listeners. Well,
1: thank you for that. Uh, Maybe you just saved me some jail time.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I'd like to, I like to try to keep folks out of jail.
1: (laughs) So I want to learn, given your focus, your knowledge on all things plants, I don't even know, this is one of those interviews. I don't even know the right questions to ask to get out some some of that really interesting stuff. I want to learn about some of the odd plants or, you know, you mentioned that one in in the one part of Mexico that's made out of agave and it's only made there. What are some things you discovered when writing this book, again, it's called The Drunken Botanist, um, that we might not be aware of or some ways that these plants or interesting plants uh, are, are either being turned into alcohol or are flavors, you know, what are some really odd things that you uncovered?
2: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what we have to remember is that there's all the plants that we actually transform into alcohol because of the sugar or the starch that those plants contain. And that's kind of like part one of my book is looking at those plants. But then we get into all the plants that get added at the distillery before the spirit goes into the bottle. So for instance, if you're going to make gin, you're gonna take this high proof spirit that you can make out of whatever you want. You can make it out of grains, you can make it out of apples or potatoes or anything you want. And once you've got this high proof neutral spirit, you start adding plants to it to change the flavor. And if you wanna call it gin, then by law, you have to add some juniper. That's what makes it gin. But you're also gonna be adding some citrus peel, um, maybe some coriander, which is the seeds of the cilantro plant, you might be adding um, I don't know sassafras, lavender, uh, orris root, which is the root of, of an iris like a kind of like a regular iris that would grow in your garden. Uh, the roots have a, have been used as a fixative to sort of hold unstable flavors in place and they've been used in alcohol and perfume for centuries for that. there's all these interesting plants, that go, that go uh, into the still or into these botanical baskets that hang in the still so that as the vapors move up through the still, they pick up these flavors before it goes into the bottle. And so what's interesting to me about this group of plants, the plants that are used for flavor, is that so many of them had their start as medicine. Going back to Greek and Roman times and even earlier, we were adding plants to alcohol, Because again, alcohol is a solvent and it will extract some of the active ingredients so that they can sit on a shelf until someone gets sick and needs them. Because you might not always have the plant around when the person gets sick because maybe it's winter or whatever. So, so many things we drink got started as medicine in that way.
0: Smart People Podcast is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24 7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who helped launch the index fund revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages over $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com smartpeople smart people to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. Did that work? Does that work?
2: Oh well yeah. So that's that is interesting. Um generally no. <laughs> <laughs> generally, you know, until the really the twentieth century, we didn't have much in the way of pills. There were some pills in the in the um in the 19th century, but not many. Hmm. And uh, mostly what we had were plants in bottles. And those plants were usually soaked in alcohol. That's what bitters are. Bitters started out as a thing that a pharmacy would compound for you. We're going to take these plants, we're going to soak them in alcohol, you're going to take this home and drink it every night, and maybe you'll get better, and probably you won't. Wow. So the few that, I, I mean... Some of them, yes, so for instance, uh quinine, the bark of the Chinchona tree it's the south african uh, South American tree, and the bark contains quinine, which turns out to be a good treatment for malaria and it 's in tonic water and you can you can know that it 's in tonic water if you have a black light at home, <laughs> if you have an ultraviolet light, uh shine it on your tonic water and you'll see that it glows blue in the dark, and uh, that's the quinine which becomes unstable in the presence of um ultraviolet light and and starts you know uh, uh throwing off energy to try to get itself back in a stable form and that blue light is the energy it's trying to get rid of weird so um so quinine definitely is in our drinks and it was medicine things like gentian this is one of my favorite plants in the book it's a it's a yellow flower that grows in the swiss alps and the roots are very bitter if you like campari you've tasted gentian, that bitter, it almost tastes like you're biting into orange peel.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That's gentian root. Mm -hmm. And that has been considered medicinal forever. I mean, going back to early, early Chinese and Egyptian writings, we know that it's been used as medicine to treat um, stomach ailments for uh, millennia. And I've interviewed a scientist at Rutgers who's working on gentian right now and, and looking at its pharmaceutical properties. And it turns out that gentian, you put a little in your mouth, it talks to the nerve endings in your mouth before you've even swallowed it. it, communicates with your brain and your brain tells your body to produce more saliva and digestive fluids. So it gets your whole digestive system going all at once before you've even swallowed it. And this is something, it's, it's very useful in medicine. It's useful for people who've had chemotherapy, um, having problems gaining weight back, can't produce enough saliva to swallow, can't get the feeding tube out, all kinds of useful applications for gentian. And you can try it yourself. Next time you have a little Campari or even Angostura bitters or something else that has gentian in it, notice that you're drooling Hmm. more than usual.
1: (laughs) That is, that's the kind of stuff. I knew I'd get something out of you. I love that. Those things, you know, learning about that. I mean, as far as my knowledge goes, it's like, well, ginger's good for your stomach. That's about all I know, but I, right. I want to know more. <laughs> yeah. You
2: want to know why, like, what is it exactly that's talking to the, what receptors in your body and how's that happening? So yeah, it is interesting that in some cases, some of these plants actually do what they're advertised to do. And there's a reason why we've been using them for thousands of years. For instance, aloe, Um, If you've had aloe juice to drink, you probably think it tastes perfectly fine, whatever you think of it. But if you actually get juice directly out of the aloe plant, it's extremely bitter because there's this bitter molecule called aloin that they don't put in the juice because nobody would drink it because it's too bitter. But aloin also has very powerful uh, digestive effects. Um, It's a laxative Mm. uh, and a very good one. It used to be sold all the time as a laxative. And that is the bitter plant that gives Fernet bronca its taste, its bitter taste. And Fernet Branca is considered a digestif. It's something you can drink if you've got indigestion after a really heavy meal. And I think it's no coincidence that one of the dominant flavors is from a, a laxative.
1: Oh, yeah. And,
2: so there you have it.
1: And that's that's what, you know, sometimes I want to believe it. I was thinking about ginger specifically, right? Like, oh, I, I want to believe that that's good for my stomach or that's going to help. But at the end of the day, I just go, or I could just take some Pepto-Bismol.
2: Well, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, ginger is actually kind of an interesting one because um, ginger and many of the other plants in the ginger family, such as grains of paradise, which is a really close relative to ginger, even though it's the seeds rather than the root. um, They do seem to have a really powerful anti-inflammatory quality about them. So Mm -hmm. there's probably really is something going on there.
1: Sure. Yeah, well, that's why I stick to ginger tea for the most yeah, part. Yeah, it's good stuff. So in this research, I'm sure you, you had your fair share of delicious cocktails or or different types of spirits. I was wondering if you came across any favorites that we might be able to find. Maybe, you know, maybe it has to be on the Internet or whatever, but now I want to try out something, you know, something new.
2: Right. Oh, yeah. You would not believe what my liquor collection looked like. Yes because it was all a tax write off.
1: Oh my gosh.
2: Can you imagine? I, I, I'm going to write I a mean, book
1: on this stuff. Oh, I'm not going to sell there, any copies, but
2: <laughs> Yeah, there there were seriously no breaks on my spending. I just, you know, anything I heard of, I'm like, "Well, we have to try it because yeah. it's research." We're going to need a bottle of that $80 rose eau de vie. Like, <laughs> wow, somebody's making eau de vie out of rose petals. I think we're going to need some of that. Yeah. You know, so it was all this crazy stuff. Um the things that, I, that that remain my favorite, now that even the book's been out for a couple of years, uh, one of them is Strega. Have you ever had Strega? I have not. So S-T-R-E-G-A. Okay. It's Italian for witch. And it's a yellow herbal liqueur, kind of along the lines of yellow chartreuse, but far better. Um, and, and one of these very complex herbal liqueurs that was definitely used for medicine you know, they start adding sugar to them at some point, hoping that their patients will be more likely to drink them. And that oh. turned out to absolutely be the case. And pretty soon we're on our way to the modern cocktail being born. Wow. Um, but uh, Strega's strong taste, I think, of, of Angelica, which is a really interesting um, flavor in a drink. Okay. And probably a lot of lemon verbena and also some really warm heat like cinnamon uh, it's amazing. And I just drink it by itself. I refuse to pollute it with any other spirit. I just put an ice cube in it and drink it over ice. It's sweet. So it's kind of an after dinner thing, but people either love it or they, I don't I don't know that I've actually met anyone who hates it, but if you love it, you love it. You know, like I've just seen people's eyes bug out when they drink Strega for the first time. Well, I'm definitely,
1: I mean, I see that. And that's, what, I'm definitely going to be getting that. And I'm, I'm a fan of you know, a little bit sweeter. Like my favorite drink by far is an old fashioned, if it's done yeah. right. I love bitters too. Right. You know, so actually, when I discovered for the first time, like really good lavender bitters, a couple uh-huh. of years back, I went to some cocktail place and a bunch of lavender. I, my mind was blown. Yeah. So, um, okay. So strago, what else we got?
2: Um, coki americano is incredible. Um, if you like lillet then you'll love Cokie Americano. It's an, it's a, um, it's a, um, aperitif wine. And it's part of the broad category of aperitif wine that vermouth is also in. So this is something that a good wine shop will have. And, um, it's C-O-C-C-H-I. Okay. I think that's right. Cokì Americano. I think okay. there's an H in there. <laughs> and, um, it's amazing all by itself. It's really good mixed with, uh, soda water or sparkling wine or even like a dry rosé. I absolutely love it. And I really love all of the really high quality vermouths that we can now get in the United States. Mm. Um, Equal parts sweet and dry vermouth is a wonderful drink. Really? Assuming you're drinking good vermouth and um, it's been treated like wine. You know, vermouth is nothing but wine with herbs and spices added to it. So you can't have a bottle of vermouth that's been open for six months sitting out on a shelf somewhere. Uh, it would go bad like any other wine would.
1: I didn't know that. The only time I ever put vermouth was in, like a, uh, in a Manhattan.
2: Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you pretty much, with vermouth, you got to keep it in the fridge. you got to keep it uh, closed tightly. And you've maybe got, uh, you know, if you want to push it, you've got a month, maybe you've got six weeks or so out of a bottle of vermouth. So you really have to apply yourself and you got to work on it and hmm. make progress.
1: What about, do you have any, did you try along the line, any of your, uh, any bourbons that stick out to you?
2: You know, um, I did, I, I have to say, I mean, I love bourbon also, but there's something about how expensive bourbons have gotten. Yeah. That kind of, at some point I just had to kind of roll my eyes and go, you know what? I'm done. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, it's not that I don't love a happy van winkle when somebody wants to pour me a little of it but honestly the kind of -of run-of-the-mill bourbons that you can get anywhere like i mean you know wood like a nice woodford reserve that's my
1: favorite Uh, i'm so glad you threw that out there that is probably that's my favorite bourbon
2: it's an excellent bourbon but you know what maker's mark is also a terrific bourbon Hmm. i've always got maker's mark in the house yeah It's, it's very well made it's very palatable Makers has wheat in it rather than rye, which gives it a round, soft, bready flavor. It's a real crowd pleaser. One of the nice things I think about spirits is that you don't have to pay a fortune. Mm. You know, you can get a great gin for 30 bucks. You can get a great whiskey for 30 bucks. You don't have to get real high end to drink something very nice and well made.
1: You know, what I, what I recently found interesting as I could start to afford a little bit more expensive stuff is I totally agree with you on spirits, but yeah. one of the things that I've been, uh, at, you know, I didn't want to, but I've been buying a little bit nicer wine and I noticed there is a difference between $5 wine and say, you know, a $5 bottle and like a $40 bottle. I don't know about hundred or 200. I'm not there yet. Right, but, but I've moved on a little bit from the five dollar, you know, five dollar Trader Joe's bottles.
2: Yes, <laughs> I think that's true. I my yeah my opinion in wines is that you can get such lovely wines in the ten to twenty dollar price range, mm. and I think it's it's great. You know, if somebody wants to pour me a forty to fifty dollar wine, I'm always happy to have it. Right. But I do think there too, you get up and to the higher end, and at some point, it starts to drop off. Right. You know? A $200 bottle of wine is not 10 times better than a $20 bottle of wine.
1: Yeah. I wish, you know, one day I hope to have those problems where those choices. are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Amy, you know, I've really enjoyed this. And again, the book is The Drunken Botanist. Another one which we didn't get to discuss, but I really enjoyed because these are just the weird, wacky things that I like to learn about was wicked plants. And I think the things in there will just blow some people's minds. So go check that out. And I know your most recent book is a novel, Girl Waits with a Gun, based on a true story, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. What uh, prompted
1: it, you to to kind of make, that seems like a pretty big switch.
2: It is a big switch. I was, uh, I was doing research for Drunken Botanist, and I was reading about a, a gin smuggler who was tainting his gin with poisonous plants. So it was like perfect crossover between oh, yeah. wicked plants and drug botanists. And I just wanted to, I just Googled his name to see if there was more out there about him. This is a hundred years ago. And I found another guy by the same name, Henry Kaufman. I don't know if it was the same guy or not, but he'd gotten into a car accident that escalated into this crazy crime. And I was just fascinated. So I kept following my nose and reading more and more about this crime and the case and the aftermath of it. It involved these three sisters a hundred years ago in Patterson, New Jersey. And I just fell in love with the three women and uh, found out everything about them. I got totally obsessed. I mean, you should see my Evernote (laughs) files on them. It's hundreds and hundreds of newspaper clippings. So, um, yeah, if you're if you sort of like historical fiction and you like crime fiction and you like really badass women doing unexpected things a hundred years ago, then then it's for you.
1: Then that's the way to go. And yes. you know what else? It's, it must be great being a writer because you go, wow, this is interesting. I'm going to make it my job for the next X amount of months.
2: Right. <laughs> as long as you can get a publisher to agree with you on that, yes. it can be your job. Otherwise it just becomes a very expensive hobby. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Well, Amy, again, thank you so much. The book is the drunken botanist, the one we've been discussing and your newest book girl waits with a gun. Is there anywhere else that you would like to make our listeners aware of places you might write or blog, or if you're on social media, et cetera.
2: Oh, uh, well, yeah, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. And uh, I'll be out on tour September and October. So if you go to amystewart.com, look for my tour dates and see if you can come out and say hi.
1: That sounds great. And we'll link to those at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Amy, thank you again so much for your time. Uh, We really appreciate it. And I've I've definitely enjoyed it. I'm going to go pour myself a drink.
2: Nice. All right. (laughs) Well, thank you. All right. Have
0: have a great evening. Okay. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Amy Stewart. You can pick up her book, The Drunken Botanist, The Plants That Create the World's Great Drinks, on Amazon or at your local bookstore. And don't forget, if you do purchase it at Amazon, use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash amazon. If you've got a few minutes today and want to do something nice for the show, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Hope everyone is having a fantastic summer. We've got great episodes coming up and we will see you all next week.